Hey there, podcast listener. Chris Roseborough here right at the front of the podcast. Just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know that, right? Yeah, yeah, it, it is. If you don't already support us financially, we truly can use your help. So get on your computer. Go on over to fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons and support us. And, of course, if you would like to do it the traditional way, make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your financial support because we truly can't do what we're doing here without it. All right, on to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Friday, September 9th, 2011. I'd be on the road today. Mm-mm. So we're going to do our light edition. I think I mentioned this last week. Early. I forget. Creeping decrepitude has crept farther into my brain than I care to confess. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I'm your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Uh, one of the things we've been doing lately is uh, a series, uh, we're working through a series of lectures by Dr. Dr. Daniel Van Voorhis of... Uh, Concordia, Irvine, and uh, he's been doing a series of lectures entitled Christianity in America. Today we're going to be listening to lecture number two, and we're going to listen without commercial interruption, and I'm going to actually not be at the other end of it either. I'm uh, in, in the throes of trying to uh, get last-minute production work done, and so this is going to be one of those commercial-free editions of Fighting for the Faith. So <clears throat> enjoy. Anyway... <laughs> So uh, the, the, this particular lesson is entitled Christianity in America, Rationalism and Revivalism in the 1700s. I, I think we'll just dive right into it. So without any further ado, here is Dr. Daniel Van Voorhis, and I'll catch you all next week uh, with as I uh, debrief and discuss how my event went in Elk River, Minnesota. So again, here's Dr. Daniel Van Voorhis, Christianity in America, Rationalism and Revivalism in the 1700s. Now, remember, what I'm doing here, and we, we need to rem- remind ourselves, and I need to remind myself, that, that we have a certain telos. We have a certain end point that we're getting to. This isn't just American history. I like American history, but this is a parish setting, and I'm not just going to do American history. What is the goal? I said that all historians need to first have a question they're trying to answer. And then you go to sources, and you look at sources, and you find out what, in case, what, what happened. And so the question that I've had ever since I, I, I was baptized and I started going to, uh, to Concordia University, and, and uh, Dr. Rosenblatt can attest to this, is I am fascinated 
with evangelicalism. I think it is, I didn't grow up in the church, I think it's really peculiar. That's the word I'm going to use. Very peculiar. Very eccentric. Now when I say eccentric, I just mean outside the circle. It's very different. Uh, and sometimes when you're living right in something, you don't realize that what's happening down the road at, at uh, Runny Hills uh, Shiny Time Church, that's very strange. And I'm not, this isn't pejorative, necessarily, kind of. But we need to know why it's, why it's a, the beast that it is. And to understand the beast that it is, we need to go back to the Puritans, and that's what we did last week. And that's that yellow sheet where we talked about Puritans as the radical Calvinists, and we talked about uh, the Mayflower and, and that bunch, uh, but then the Arbella, and, and that's all on there. And, of course, these go on online if you, uh, you want to sit and watch those. Uh, but that's last week in America. We were talking about the early colonies, the 1600s, the 17th century. And today, we're going to be talking about the 1700s, the 18th century. And let me tell you something about someone who, who, who spends most of his time uh, in the 1700s. Uh, this is a very contentious century. I don't care if you're talking about religion or politics or agriculture or what have you. You're going to get in fights. Uh, everything, it seems, everybody wants to fight over what was happening in the 1700s. Uh, so, let's start. Um, it's, it's very difficult, and, and, and I'm not going to get into the fights, all of the fights. The one I want to get into is what was the nature of American Christianity in the 1700s? Now, everyone will agree that there was a massive split. That the church in the 1700s, we come out of the Puritans and we see some of the rumblings with Anne Hutchinson and Roger Williams and the, the, uh, uh, certainly Maryland, which is the, the Catholic uh, territory. But by the time we get to the 1700s, we see a, a split. And if we want to make it simple, we can say this is the split. Rationalism v. revivalism. That's what it is. And that's going to mark the, the, the main line and, and popular Christian church in America. And we're going to be looking and we're going to see this split all the way up to the mainline liberal churches today and the giant mega churches and uh, the, the emergent churches, which uh, will be the last uh, talk we'll be doing today. So rationalism versus revivalism. Who's good? Who's bad? Oh, these are enemies. And uh, depending if you go to a, a church history conference, everyone's going to be on one side. And if you go to another kind of conference, everybody's going to be on the other side. And um, I may upset both sides today. But I, I find that's where, well, I'm fine with that. Um, okay. So first of all, I, 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 as a, none of my students are here, but I, I still find it funny and they would laugh, um, that they say everything I do has to come back to the 30 years war. And I tell them, of course it does. There's no more important war in the history of the, uh, the world than the 30s war. Uh, and then I ask them when it was, and they look at me, and I start to cry. <laughs> We've talked about the 30 years war before, 1618 to 1648. Why is this so important? Well, obviously because of the number of people that died. Obviously because of the number of confessional groups that were fighting each other. But also, for our sake today, I'm going to tell you why else the 30 years war is so important. Another thing that, that uh, my students, if they were here, would groan and roll their eyes is I, would, is I would tell them, I would ask, 
What are the three major questions, three existential questions that all people have asked since the beginning of time? What are the three most important questions? And the students would roll their eyes and they'd say, what should I believe? How should I be governed? And what's the nature of civilization slash social equality? Those three questions. Now, this isn't some sort of um, uh, theory I'm putting down on history, but this is simply other historians, much uh, smarter than myself, have noticed this and said, that, well, this is, these are the important questions. What should I believe? How should I be governed? What's the nature of civilization and social equality? And if we look at the past 500 years, these questions are always being asked, but we find an emphasis in each different period. And so if you look at that handout, and this is rough. Remember, round numbers are always false. 1500 to 1650. The question was, what should I believe? This is the Reformation century. What should I believe? And, and I'm talking about the West. Uh, the East closed itself off. What should I believe? Now, the question changes around 1650. The, the, the emphasis changes to how should I be governed? And that will be the question that is, is the primary question from about 1650 through 1800. The years of the revolutions, the wars of independence... Now it's a question of governance. Now, I'm not saying that people aren't, aren't asking theological questions, but the emphasis is on statecraft. Now, how does this tie to the Thirty Years' War? Well, the Thirty Years' War, of course, started because Catholics were angry at, at, at Lutherans and, and Calvinists, and so they were fighting. And it was a confessional war. And then around the second phase, and I could draw a wonderful little map for you, but you would, you would not enjoy it. Um, my students don't. I think it's fun. <laughs> About the second phase of the Thirty Years' War, all of a sudden, something curious starts to happen. F French Protestants start fighting alongside French Catholics. And in other regions, Lutherans and Catholics or Calvinists, and Cal they start fighting together. Now it becomes a war about the nation-state. And so the confessional issues are put aside, not, uh, not across the board by everyone, but by and large are put away, and now the question is one of governance. How should I be governed? So that's this time period. Uh, and just so you know, I put out there that the question of, of civilization and social equality, that's going to take us from about 1800, after the wars of independence and revolutions, to 1920. Um, and then, uh, just because I've got to put a bow on it for you, uh, since 1921, historian suggests uh, that all three of these questions have been, have been asked, um, and all of our answers are dumb. And we don't deal seriously with any of these questions anymore. Um, it's, 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 it's quite damning, but nevertheless. The Thirty Years' War and going into this, how should I be governed? Now, this time period, as some of you might know, and we're going to talk about rationalism to start with, is oftentimes called the Age of Reason or the Enlightenment. Now, when I talk uh, or give papers or the like about the Enlightenment, um, and I am in uh, settings with, with Christians, uh, sometimes I, I think they, they may get a little anxious and, and wonder uh, if I am in fact saved. Um, 
because it's, it's not all that bad. Okay, I'm going to give you evidence here, okay? There's plenty of bad stuff, but it's actually not all that bad. The age of reason or the enlightenment, I'm going to quote a, a historian here because this quote is very, very helpful. He says, and I think I put it on your handout. I did. When we call the 18th century the age of reason or enlightenment, we only mean an age when men talked a great deal about reason and hoped that its conscious use would bring about a marked improvement in human affairs. That was the goal. Much of it had to do with statecraft. Now, were there some bad ideas in the Enlightenment? Oh, yes. Just like every other era in human history, there are always terrible ideas. And we're going to talk a bit more about that, but that's what the Enlightenment is. It's trying to use reason to bring about improvement in human affairs. Now, reason, well, what, what do we, as Lutherans, that's a philosophy and that, we shouldn't deal with that. And Professor Dean, what are you doing? Well, let me take you to the catechism, Luther's catechism. What does he say, of course, in the first article? Everyone, okay, I won't, I won't ask. I believe that God has made me and all creatures, that he has given me my body, my soul, eyes, ears, and all my members, my reason, and all my senses, and still takes care of them. Uh, Professor Dean, Dr. Rosenblatt, these are the guys that are going to do this well. I'm just the historian that talks about things shallowly, and then they do the real work. Uh, so we are interested in this. Now, the place of reason in the Enlightenment and in the church, that's what we're going to talk about. And where, it, where rationalism goes one direction and revivalism goes the other. So that's the, the first point we want to make. Now, in terms of judging the Enlightenment, I, I, I am making a bit of a caveat here or a, uh, a, a, just a bit of a sidebar, but it's important. How do we judge the Enlightenment? And there are so many Christians and, 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 and Christian books and, and other things that, that talk about the Enlightenment as if it is the end of everything. I was at lunch with a girl who was uh, a master's student at a, a large uh, a, a Christian school uh, in the Midwest called Wheaton. And uh, she, uh, <laughs> why do I need to keep it anonymous? Um, Great school. They got some really good people there. Um, and and she, we were talking about something, and she said, oh, well, all we say at Wheaton is, if something is wrong today, we blame the Enlightenment. And I just, uh, all right, I don't want to fight. You're wrong. Um, but do we judge an era by its fruits? Okay. Let's go back to Rome. What did the Romans ever do for us? <laughs> all right, all right. But apart from better sanitation and medicine and education and irrigation and public health and roads and fresh water systems and baths and public order, what have the Romans done for us? Brought peace? Oh, yes, of course, peace. Shut up. That, of course, is from Life of Brian. Rome brought some fantastic things. And guess what? It also brought some terrible things. The fusion of church and state under Constantine, not a great thing, it could be argued. How about just declaring that everyone is a Christian? What does that lead to? It leads to something called syncretism. What's that? Um, well, I, I worship this little idol over here or believe this or that. Now you're telling me I'm a Christian. Okay, I'll just bring them together. 
right? That's when you have state-enforced religion, that's the kind of thing that happens. So was Rome, the Roman Empire, a good or a bad thing? Uh, well, it's kind of both, isn't it? Oh, the Middle Ages, or the Dark Ages, as some people like to call it. You know what they had? A corrupt papacy. Yeah. Witch, witch hunting, and that's really bad, I've heard. And uh, what else did they have? Uh, they had, uh, uh, oh, uh, superstition. Ah, Middle Ages, no good. Except for all those monks that preserved the Western canon, that saved Western civilization. The Dark Ages, the Middle Ages, good thing? Bad thing? Hmm. Okay, well, the Renaissance, right? The Renaissance, I mean, that's, you think of the art, think of the architecture, right? This is fantastic. But what about humanism? and free will Pelagian, and Pelagian talk, and textual criticism. Oh, that's a bad thing in the hands of Germans later on. <laughs> this is bad. Oh, yeah, but what else did it bring about? It helped to bring about the Reformation. The Renaissance a good thing or a bad thing? But for some reason, when it gets to the Enlightenment, we just say, oh, well, that's Voltaire and the like, and it sucks. Um, but... Despite the atheism or the deism, uh, the secularism, the general naughtiness, the Marquis de Sade and all the like, um, what about scientific breakthroughs that brought the infant mortality rates down? What about the food production and sanitation methods? It is, what about the, the industrial revolution that comes right on top of and because of the Enlightenment? What about the sciences that, interestingly enough, the beginning of the Enlightenment and the beginning of the scientific revolution, who's at the forefront? Lutherans. It's a very interesting discussion. We can have it another time. Uh, but nevertheless, yes, it had some general naughtiness and bad ideas, but it also had some very good things. Not to mention constitutionalism. Right? We're getting out of, we're into the age of the nation states, and we're asking how should we be governed. And some people think, you know what's a good idea? Contracts. Contracts between the, the ruled and the rulers. The age of reason, or the enlightenment, not only had a, proud, a profound effect on science, technology, medicine, but most certainly on the birth of the United States, that place that we're looking at, particularly its church. And when we talk about the Enlightenment and the United States, who do we go to? We go to the Founding Fathers. And we don't have to fight over who's a Founding Father and who's not. I'm talking about the, those gener that generation of men uh, that put together uh, our Constitution, that fought in the War of Independence, uh, and the like. Well, what do we do with them? And this is another place where Christian history books just muck things up. What do we do with them? Well, we can do a couple things. We can discard them. After all, they were part of the Enlightenment. Hmm. Blame the Enlightenment. Everything runs in the Enlightenment. We can discard them. If you want to do that, fine. I think you do it at your own peril. Or we can baptize them. Oh, yes, Ben Franklin was a naughty fellow, but I heard somewhere that he converted on his deathbed. Yes, I heard that too about Jefferson. Yes, they're both definitely in heaven and da da da. No. No, they, they were deists. They were Masons. I don't claim to know who's up there and who's not. Our Old Testament passage about how he's going to bring another, it reminded me of um, 
uh, book seven of uh, Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, you know, where all those others are there. Nevertheless, they were not Christians in, this, in any sort of historical classical sense, so don't baptize them. Or we could hesitantly praise them. Oh, they were very good men, oh, but they weren't Christians by any means. Well, okay, that's, that's, that's very much the way that evangelical America has dealt with the founding fathers. Lutherans, if you are, we have a different way of looking at this. We don't have to discard them, baptize them, or <laughs> get really nervous. Why? We thank God for giving all men and women particular vocations and skills. And if we are so inclined to believe, as many do, that the founding of this country was a brilliant masterstroke of political genius, we thank God for the freedoms that we enjoy on account of their political and constitutional acumen. Good enough? There you go. It's a doctrine of two kingdoms. It really helps us out when we're looking at Christianity in America and the Enlightenment in America. Don't be afraid. I'm going to tell you about a group of people that were very afraid and what that did to the fabric of American Christianity in just a minute. So we're going to talk briefly uh, about the church and state in America. Uh, I am not a, a, a lawyer. Uh, I do not teach constitutional law. Uh, for this stuff, I, I have a, a good friend who teaches constitutional law uh, part-time at the university who helps me with this stuff. But when we look at the, the separation of church and state or the relationship between church and state, let me just describe what it looked like. Let me just describe. First of all, the, the church and the state, although we saw the Puritans and, and the sort of theonym, uh, the, the, the theonomy, uh, the idea that God's law, especially his moral law, should be the law of the state uh, with the Puritans and the Calvinists. Uh, we also find all sorts of different curious pockets in the 17th and 18th century, such as, I think I put on your sheet, the, the Maryland Toleration Act of 1649. Now, it would make sense that Maryland would be the first ones to pass something saying, uh, if, you, if you don't have our confession, it's cool, we're not going to kill you. Now, you need to be Trinitarian. There was a, a, there was a clause in there. But it was the, the first thing. This goes all the way back in 1649. Maryland passed a Toleration Act. And the Articles of Confederation, which I hope you all know uh, what those are, uh, they, they were quite a good thing. Uh, in, in number three, Article 3, <clears throat> the states will defend each other if persecuted for religion. It's, 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 it's vague and purposely vague. And then, of course, you all know the Bill of Rights and the First Amendment. And at least for our sake, the first part of the First Amendment. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Church and state. So follow me on my three paths today. Rationalism, church and state, then revivalism. Church and state. I'm not going to get into constitutional this and that. I'm just going to tell you as a mere historian what the people who wrote it thought they were writing what they meant by it. No law respecting. What did that mean? That is, it will not interfere with established relationships. That, that is, 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 regardless of, of anybody's position on church and state in America, the intention of the fathers was most certainly to keep the status quo. It was to not have any new laws or anything to, to interfere with the established relationships. 
Remember, the Bill of Rights was simply there as an, uh, an attempt to keep the rights of the people that they already had, including the right <clears throat> that uh, the, the, the Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. It was a safeguard. Now, how do I know this? Well, uh, we know who was primarily responsible for the Constitution, uh, and, and of course this is James Madison, and James Madison has a big fight over Article I. There was a lot more about religion in the Constitution, and a lot of it was, was taken out. Is that because it wasn't important to the Founding Fathers? No, it's because it was too important. It was too important. It would hold up the whole thing. And so they threw that First Amendment in there, in the Bill of Rights, and even to get that language, William Ames of Massachusetts and James Madison had to fight. And they came up with that language. What did the church in Massachusetts look like before and after the signing? It looked the same. The goal was to keep the status quo. So that in Massachusetts, the state of Massachusetts received a tithe from the Congregationalist Church all the way until 1833. That was not seen as a breach of the First Amendment, of separation of wall and state, church of, uh, separation of church and state. It was just seen as keeping the status quo. Uh, you, you can read more on that, and if you want to afterwards, I'll tell you some good books. <clears throat> and now, I, uh, what about that, <clears throat> pardon me, <clears throat> what about that wall of separation? Now, a few of you are sitting there and you're saying, aha, I know it doesn't say anything about the wall of separation uh, in, in the Constitution. The, the, there, there's no such thing as that wall of separation. That was, that was from Jefferson in a letter. And I say, good for you. And you say, oh, and it was a letter to the Danbury Baptist Church. And I say, hot dog, fantastic. And you say, that's where it came up. That's where it came from. And I say, you fail. No, the phrase was already used. The phrase was used 100 years before Jefferson used it. And it was used by Roger Williams, that erstwhile character we met last week, that religious dissenter who got in trouble with Anne Hutchinson because they were antinomians and he fled to Rhode Island. And he's the one that says, we need a, we need a wall of separation, those exact words. But Jefferson and Williams had two different ideas about the wall of separation. This is very important, so I put it on your handout. That is, Williams wanted a wall of separation <clears throat> between church and state because he wanted to protect the church. He didn't want the state meddling in church affairs, whereas it could be argued the opposite for Jefferson. Jefferson didn't want the church meddling in state affairs. So the separation, the wall of separation, simply uh, does not <clears throat> exist uh, in, our, in, our, in our Constitution, in our Bill of Rights. Uh, the 14th Amendment is going to do something, but we'll leave it there. Uh, if you want to know basically what the courts do today when it comes to separation of uh, the wall of separation, uh, that language is, is not often used um, at, the, at the sake of, um, well, I can talk to you later about what they do there. Because I want to move back to the Enlightenment and to rationalism. Rationalism, which gave us these wonderful documents, 
which caused us to think about how should we be governed, coming off of the century of where we thought, how should we believe, and, and bringing these two things together, and to some extent correctly so, and to some extent not at all, there were many who were afraid. So who was afraid of the Enlightenment? Then and now. He said, someone, someone said Catholics. I, I'm going to say this, at the risk of offending anyone. The weak-minded. That's who's afraid of the Enlightenment. The weak-minded. Those unwilling to ask difficult questions and work through difficult answers when it comes to religion and statecraft. It's hard. And so it's a lot easier as a church, historically, we'll talk about this in a second, to just say, bah, atheists, naughty people, no use for them. It's weak-minded. As I mentioned in the very beginning, today we're looking at this major schism, rationalism and revivalism. And I don't think there are any revivalists in the room, so I can say this. Revivalists were weak-minded. And you might say, oh, no, no. One of them was Jonathan Edwards, and he was a very smart fellow. He went to such and such a college. and I, Oh, sure, yes, he probably would have scored very high on the SAT today. But when it came to Christianity, he was weak-minded. Who's afraid of the Enlightenment? Who's afraid of rationalism? Well, we don't want to praise rampant rationalism, that which puts man's reason above the word of God. No, we know better. And others can talk to you about the magisterial use versus the ministerial use. Right? We don't want to go the direction of we can figure everything out on our own. Thanks, God. No thanks. But we want to engage with them because the story of the 1700s is of the rationalists going this way and then the church going this way, being weak-minded. Revivalism. Weak-mindedness. What was the response in Europe, in the church? What was the best-selling book in the 1700s in Europe, or right near the top? It's a book called True Christianity by Johann Arndt. I've talked about it before. I've deal with that thing for a long time. And what was one of the best-selling books in America during this time? <clears throat> a book by Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards concerning religious affections. Is that a hardcore treatise defending the truth of the Christian uh, faith in face of the, uh, the rationalists who have gone too far? No. We talked about this a while, the beginning of the summer when we started talking about pietism. The, the response from the church in the 1700s, either European or American, was to run away. To go inside oneself. Because, after all, those guys are asking difficult questions. That Voltaire, not only is he brilliant and funny as anything, I think, but he asks really tough questions. Really tough questions. And it's hard to answer him. How do you deal with John Locke? How do you deal with Kant? Well, I think Dr. Brandt could probably do a much better job than I could talking about Kant. But Kant, where did he... He was raised in a very pious Christian home. He was raised by Lutheran pietists. And what did he say later? 
I just couldn't live up to it. I just couldn't do it. Very curious. And so this is where we see in Europe and now America, which is our focus, the, 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 the Protestant churches running away from rationalism and fear. And now this is going to lead throughout the centuries to an antagonism and a radicalism on both the, on the rationalist side and the revivalist side. I don't want to give away any stories for next Sunday, but the first Great Awakening, well, I'll explain it. I'll give you the end before I explain it. Did it work? No. So what do you do in America if at first you don't succeed? No matter how dumb the idea is, you try, try. That's why there are four Pirates of the Caribbean movies. It's, you, I don't know if that's, is that just some commentary on my part? Okay, you don't have to believe that. Uh, this is, right, you just do it again. And we've got this second Great Awakening, which we'll talk about next week, which is um, worse than all of the Pirates of the Caribbean movies. Okay, so, so it's going to lead to this antagonism. And then we're going to get to the 1920s and the Scopes trial and, and everything going haywire because the revivalists have sent us down this path, if you're a good Christian, and the rationalist angry at the revivalists who won't talk with them or engage them in dialogue, being weak-minded, go this way. And say, there's no room for us to talk. Go back to your tent. Okay? This is, this is I'm getting fired up. This is the 1700s. <laughs> what was the Great Awakening? Well, the Great Awakening was an American revivalist movement. Led by those such as Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield. Uh, and, and these, I, I don't want to just paint them as, as terrible men. Um, when it comes to the Great Awakening, when it comes to preaching... They were better than most. They were. Um, I choose not to read them. But they were better than most. They did recognize that there was a sort of radicalness coming through the Wesleys, coming through Zinzendorf, coming through Lutheran pietism that was wrong. They were, um, these were, these were Calvinists. Well, at least Edwards was a Calvinist. Whitfield was kind of a Methodist, Nevertheless, they, they weren't bad, but they started this movement. They started this movement, and it goes back to the early 1700s, concurrent with the, with the, the Enlightenment, and it starts going from, from Pennsylvania to Maine, and then it starts to go west, and it's led by revivals, by tents, by church, not just on Sunday morning, but all day Sunday and all day Saturday, and true Christianity, where everyone is covenanting together. Right? That's why you have the big tent. That's why you go out. You, you, this is, for, this is the, for the true Christians. Now, some of you who, who uh, endure my teaching um, have said, hey, this sounds familiar. This sounds like those little things, the icicle, popsicle, conventicle. Yeah, the conventicle of the Lutheran pietists. Oh, church, that's fine, but there might be some unbelievers there. So that will go there on Sunday and, you know, the pastor, he'll fix them. Uh, and then we'll go and we'll have our own thing. This is what the revivals were on a large scale. They were extremely popular. But as everyone got together and started talking, uh, we start to see breaks. The new side versus the old side. The new lights versus the old lights. And there's a denominational breakup uh, whereby we get a tree of denominations, which I'll show you later. Uh, it will... It will uh, 
make you angry. It will confound and confuse you. The Great Awakening was questioning established authority. If you look at that first week, or you remember last week, I said one of the main points that we see in Puritans, one of the main emphases is individualism. Remember where that word individualism came from? Alexis de Tocqueville. He made it up to talk about Americans. So he thought there's something weird about them. He thought there was something great about them, but also something weird about them. And Americans are great at, at challenging conventional wisdom, which can be a good thing. But it can also be a really bad thing in the church. Innovation for the sake of innovation. They founded these, uh, in the Great Awakening, founded new colleges, Bible college. It revived, as your, as your uh, handout says, it revived evangelical zeal. Everyone was talking about this sermon and that sermon, and there were newsletters. The, the country was abuzz. Jonathan Edwards. Sinners in the hands of, the, of an angry God. I was talking with Craig about this on Friday, right? Here you are. Ha, ha, ha. You will believe. And a bunch of people get really scared. And say, I believe, I believe. And then they go forward in, at Angel Stadium and whatever. And they're getting the Harvest Crusaders this week. Um, very similar. It's similar. It's very similar. Um, let me tell you, at least two different sources... And I wanted to make sure. I, I saw this in one source, and I went around and found other sources. In 1780, at the end of the Great Awakening, church attendance in America was lower than at any other time in history. Lower than now. Oh, no, but uh, Dr. Norris, this is the worst age of all time because there's all sorts of terrible stuff on the television. And blah, blah, blah. No. Church attendance was at an all-time low in 1780. Uh, This is, of course, uh, research done by two different historians. Because to make a claim like that, you want to make sure you've got got things backed up. Did the Great Awakening work? Sure. I never went to to church camp, um, but I remember having friends who went to church camp and got saved. And on Monday afterwards, they were, you know, handing out tracts. And and on Wednesday, they were, you know, in the back smoking with me. You know, I mean, this is sort of right. You get you're you're with zeal. You, you get full of zeal, right? You get you get pumped up for the Lord. And then what happens by 1780 in America? It doesn't stick. It's not dealing seriously with with the existential questions. It's a revivalism that is running away from rationalism. That's the story of the 18th century. And as we move up to the Saddlebacks and the Calvaries and the Willow Creeks, we're going to see this same. As new characters are introduced and new events are introduced, we're going to keep this, we're going to see just the same chorus over and over and over again. Now, like I always say, I keep these, I try and keep them as tight as possible, uh, and I don't get into all the information uh, that I possibly could. <clears throat> so that uh, we can answer questions. So with that, I'm going to stop talking, and uh, Jim Lowe will take around a microphone, and I will do my best to answer questions, uh, but I've got some really smart people in the room, so <laughs> I'll either dodge the questions or tell you to go talk to them. I've got lawyers, i got theologians, i got philosophers. What do historians do? All right, questions. Questions about the 18th century, about the Enlightenment. I've got uh, arts here. We've got someone back here. All right. 
Yeah, there's some really good stuff um, on the Enlightenment um, that, that should be read and some really good questions, um, some really good Christian thinkers. Uh, interestingly enough, the, uh, when it comes to philosophy and the Enlightenment, the best Christian thinkers were actually mostly Catholic. It was mostly the Catholics that were willing in France to fight the philosophes and say, let's go. Where did many of the English go? To unbelief or Puritanism. Where did many Lutherans go or Germans go? Unbelief or Pietism. Catholics actually stood up to him. Art, yes. You mentioned the founding fathers. Yes. You briefly mentioned the Masonic part of it. Yeah, Masons. Masons. Yeah. Is there anything you can add to that? Yeah, Masons, uh, uh, you know, they, they, they try and keep secret. Um, in an age of Wikipedia and the internet, uh, I don't know how secret they are anymore or how real the Wikipedia site is. Um, I had a friend who did his dissertation on the Masons um, and, and got access to all sorts of things. Very curious group. Um, what, what do the Masons do? They're a, a, a cultish uh, Kiwanis club. They're nothing really to be afraid of. If you see um, uh, National Treasure... I've not because I have good taste, uh, but my wife really enjoys both of them. And um, she said, "Is she here? Great. Okay. Don't tell her to watch the video." Um, they're really. I mean, the, the the Masons are are a group of guys that get together, like like uh, the Kiwanis group or like the, um, the the Elks exactly. Now it's a social group. Now, do they have uh, sort of aberrant beliefs? Yeah. So does AA. There's a, there's a higher being. Okay. I don't know if your higher being saves you. Mine saves me, but we'll talk about that later. But you're not supposed to in the Masons. So it was sort of a group of deists generally. And so that's where these men, that's where this sort of band of brothers, that's where they met. Those were the halls they talked in. And so we, we think of Masons and we think of scary, bad people. Um, no, it's just where they met. They already had bad ideas going into the hall, and they had bad ideas leaving when it came to who God was. But it's not the masonry that did that to them. Ah, Dr. Rosenblatt. Dan, um, as you trace using the Enlightenment on one side and revivalism on the other, Reformation doesn't really fit either one. It doesn't. And it's and shame on us because we have answers. The Reformation... The, the, the tradition of the Reformation, which is best found in the Lutheran tradition, has an answer to this. You can go to the first article. You can go to Luther saying, God gave me reason. We can deal with the natural world. Remember I said, the scientific revolution, uh, who are some of the guys that started that? Lutherans, who thought the natural world should be examined for its own sake. The Lutherans should have been the ones saying, hey, let's deal with this. Imagine if Immanuel Kant's mother hadn't read Arndt. And he stayed within the fold. Now there's a guy who could have fought. But that's why I started with pietism and then puritanism. Because it it ruined the Reformation tradition for so many. And when I talk about the church in America and our ability to be tough-minded, the Reformation has a tradition of that, and, and we lost a lot of it with its aberrations with Puritanism and Pietism. Yeah, we've got a question over here. Denise. So was there anybody here during that time period 
you know, when they went revivalism and yeah, and rational, okay. So yeah. there's the rationalist revivalist split in the in the 1700s and the 18th century. Right. So where were the Lutherans, or was there anybody here who wanted to engage or who tried? The, there are people who did engage, um, and like all good works, they're out of print. Most of them. Um, there, there weren't many. Uh, as I mentioned before last week, um, uh, to when when Dan Dean uh, rightly asked the question, where were the Lutherans? Um, the Midwest. And I explained that that had to do, but that had to do with steamboats and technology, and they didn't, they didn't, it was actually a good decision because the land was cheaper. It wasn't that they were running away. They could go up the Mississippi, and the eastern seaboard was messy and crowded and filled with litter. So, where were the Lutherans? Midwest, nowhere to be found, uh, mostly influenced by Muhlenberg, Zinzendorf, and the like. Um, where were even the Calvinists? Because Calvinism does have a tradition that is very tough-minded. Right? Calvinism, when it doesn't go, veer into Puritanism and the like, uh, is quite, can be quite academic. Well, actually, it's probably too academic sometimes. Um, but the number of people, but even the, 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 and Jonathan Edwards is a great example. Because Edwards was a guy that could have fought. And he decided not to. Well, we can engage them, or we can simply go our own way. We can engage them intellectually, but that would be to make our faith something, uh, something too rational. And so, I'm going to write a book on spiritual affections. Because, as all these gentlemen know, um, what do you do when you don't have an answer? What do you do when you're, when you're scared? You make claims that can be neither falsified or found to be true. That's the great thing about statements about affections. Well, how do you know? That's where they went. So even the brightest, and that, so that's the, the closest I can get for you is not many people were fighting. And even the best and brightest thought, well, that's not the, that's not the pious way to go about it. Don't engage them. You might get some of their filth on you. It's a shame. Uh, Dan, my problem when I've looked at the Great Awakening is I've always tried to make sense of it by looking at today's evangelicalism and, and saying, well, it was kind of a version of that, which is a bit of what you've been saying today. Yeah. Except that Edwards, Whitfield and Edwards, and especially Edwards, don't fit that mold because they're really doctrinal. Yes, yes. And, and it's kind of Thank weird you. that a doctrinal guys would approach such an emotional-led revival. And how do you make sense of that? Part of it just has to do with education at the time. Part of it just has to do with the, the, the general education that people would receive. Um, and that, this is a very good question. Um, that, that, and this is what we were getting back to do with Denise. That you could do with Kant and then with Edwards. You're brilliant. Use it. Engage. And they don't. Um, I, I don't know what kind of degrees the leaders of the Harvest Crusade or modern festival things have. Um, I, I really don't know. Uh, they might have uh, PhDs in, in astrophysics or something. Um, but they choose to find the most effective way to rile up a large group of people. Well, there's doctrine, but there's... This works better. Um, and, I, and the Great Awakening, and especially the Second Great Awakening, and that's just wackadoodle. That just goes all over the place. We'll do that next week. Um, it, it's it's results-based. It's very American, yes? Results-based. What works best, the doctrine that I know or the 
Go Team Go. Um, I read several years ago in Modern Reformation about John Edwards. And so my question is, is there anybody that stood on his shoulders because of his preaching that became a rationalist? Or was there a contemporary of Edwards that led to rationalism in the United States? Yeah, I'm, uh, with rationalism, I'm not going to tie that to Edwards. No, I... Uh, revivalism but, is, yes, but is there. Yes, but because of his stature, was there somebody who grew out of that who... Yeah, a 17th or 18th century rationalist American popular figure. I can certainly do it for the 19th century. Any help from the gallery? I can't think of any. And the fact that I can't think of any it means either A, I'm dumb, or B, it could be, or B, there wasn't one. Rod. Dan, uh, it's not that you're dumb. Okay. <laughs> That's good, because you taught me, so that would be, I'd lay it on your feet. <laughs> when I had to go through a, a history of, of uh, Christian thought by Otto Heick, a two-volume, he did what no other man did. Heick had a chapter devoted to faithful, confessional Lutheran pastors, all of whose names have been totally forgotten. And Hike himself wasn't that solid, but he, but he devoted a chapter to a whole bunch of people we'd never heard of, yeah. who in spite of what was going on, preached Christ and held scripture to be true. Absolutely. And there's a reason we got a sermon like we did this morning and we do every Sunday, because... There are people that, despite the revivalism and the rationalism, that stayed the course. Unfortunately, this is the minority in America. And I'm just reporting as a mere historian. Unfortunately, church, is, church numbers are exploding. They're going through the roof. Oh, 1780 was a bad year, but 2011 is a banner year. But is this American Christianity anything like that historic Christianity, which others have talked about and I've talked a little bit about in the past week? Uh, and the answer uh, I'll give to you at the last, well, I'll give it to you now, no. <laughs> and what we're doing is we're, we're tracing what made this so. And so with that, if you look at the, the, the last sheet, on the back sheet, I just say, listen, if you take anything away from today, the Enlightenment drove a wedge between the rationalists and the revivalists. Church and state questions were emphasized. This is that second period. In many political documents, religion does not permeate them. Not because it wasn't important, but because it was too important. And then, all, then finally, with the, the Enlightenment, uh, sorry, with the rash, uh, revivalists comes the proliferation of the new lights, the old lights, the new side, the old side, and the denominations which are going to become legion in the next century. So I will leave you there. Next week we will get into the 1800s. And um, if you have any questions afterwards, feel free to come talk to me. Thank you. Thank you.